Thank you, Bill. Good morning. This morning, we are in God's Word, as always, and we are in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 4, we pick up where we left off last week. Now, you'll remember going back to chapter 1 of the book of Acts in verse 8, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come upon his disciples and they would be anointed in such a way and empowered in such a way to be witnesses in Jerusalem. But he didn't stop there. He went on to say in Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. Now, there was a persecution in Jerusalem that we talked about over the last two weeks where Stephen was martyred and the church was scattered. And so, as we pick up in chapter 8 and in verse 4, it is during that time of scattering that Philip is called to minister to the Samaritans. But remember that the persecution that seemed so awful and clearly was tragic, and especially for Stephen, was actually being used by God not only to reach a young man named Saul, who would later be the Apostle Paul, but God was also working to move his church through persecution to move his church in the direction that he had called them to go. It's something to think about what God will allow to happen for us to respond to his spirit. Maybe some of what we're going through today personally or as a nation has something to do with God allowing these things that we might be the people that he's called us to be in the place that he's called us to go. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. And as always, we are looking for you to be the God who does all things by your power, according to your mercy and your grace. And Lord God, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would just take this time that we offer to you And use it to build us up and to encourage us and to make us the people you've called us to be. And again, to go where you've called us to go. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 8. And we've just entered this section of the book that has everything to do with witnesses in all Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria. Now, it's probably best to tell you that Judea was the province that encompassed and included Jerusalem. It was the area immediately outside of Jerusalem. It still is today referred to as Judea. Samaria was slightly to the north, and we'll talk more about that this morning. But all of this tells us that God was actually moving his church where he wanted them to be. When we read in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ. He proclaimed the Christ there, and when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, so there was great joy in that city. Here in the book of Acts, in chapter 8, we're seeing that God is not just using men like Peter and the apostles, But God is working through and using servants, ministers, deacons like Philip. Let's talk a little bit about who Philip is. We we studied about Philip a number of weeks ago in chapter 6. First of all, it's important to remember that Philip proclaimed Christ. 
He was proclaiming the message of the gospel, and he was proclaiming that to the Samaritans. He was a deacon, that is a servant, a minister in the church at Jerusalem. He was a a Grecian Jew as opposed to a Hebraic Jew, known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. That was the qualification for being a servant in the early church. He was one of the seven men that were chosen by the disciples to minister to widows. It was his calling to minister to the most needy within the church. And he and others were were commissioned by the apostles as servant leaders in the early church. And then the persecution begins. Stephen, of course, has been preaching boldly in addition to serving widows. And he's put to death. He's martyred. And then the persecution begins. And Philip, one of those seven deacons alongside Stephen, is scattered along with the other servants of Christ. And he finds himself in Samaria. Now, Samaria. Samaria was a large region directly north of Judea and directly south of Galilee. Now, the Jews, the Jews despised the people of Samaria. They truly did, and they avoided it at all costs. They would do anything they could to avoid even walking through Samaria. And the the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered and destroyed by Assyria in about 722 B.C., during the time of the prophecy of Isaiah the prophet— in and around that time period. And after that took place, many of the people of Israel were taken into captivity and they were deported to Assyria, which is what Assyria's practice was. They would repopulate areas uh, to eliminate the the ethnic strength and the patriotism uh, of a particular area. They would move people from conquered lands to other conquered lands. And through intermarriage, they would sort of breed out this idea of Uh, a strong resistance. It was their policy. It's what they did. It was cruel, but it was effective. So many of the people of Israel were taken into captivity and deported. Not all, but many were. Repopulation created a mixed religion, and it resulted in intermarriage. And so the descendants of these marriages were known as Samaritans, because Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel until it fell in 722 BC. That's the history of the Samaritans, or how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. But the Samaritans despised the Jews. They despised the people of Jerusalem. They avoided contact with them as well. See, the southern kingdom of Judah had rejected the Samaritans after 722 BC because of the repopulation, because of the conquering and the intermarriage. they started to practice what you could call a corrupted form of Judaism. That is the Samaritans. And the Jews, they considered their very existence a curse on their religion. The hatred ran deep. They offered to, the Samaritans offered to enter into an alliance with the Jews after they started to return to the area and after the Babylonian captivity, but They refused. The Jews refused. They wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans, and therefore they became bitter enemies of the returned captives. You can read about this in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. So then the Samaritans strongly opposed the rebuilding of the temple as well, which caused them to create really a theory or a myth. It wasn't true that God had not called them to worship in Jerusalem. 
See, it was politically expedient for them to come up with a, with a, a story that said they were called to worship in the area of Samaria because then they didn't have to go into Jerusalem and certainly they didn't have to encounter the Jews. So they created their own religion of sorts. It was based on the first five books of Moses. It was corrupted. It wasn't, it wasn't really true. When Jesus encountered the woman at the well in Samaria, he had conversations about these things with her. So as Jesus was ministering, and he ministered in Samaria, even the disciples really wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. They were despised, cursed, and hated. This hatred had gone on for hundreds of years. Now, I've given you all that background so you understand the the magnitude of Philip's decision to minister the gospel to the Samaritans. When Jesus chose to minister to the Samaritans, his own disciples wanted nothing to do with this ministry. Ultimately, they came along. But it was against their will. It was under duress. They really didn't have any other choice because Jesus was leading them. But this man, Philip, called to be a servant leader in the church. From all indications, it says he went down to a city in Samaria. He was scattered, but he didn't have to go to Samaria. And notice it says, and proclaimed Christ there. It seems to me that God gave Philip a heart for Samaritans. What group of people has God given you a heart for? You see, unless we have a heart for people, the gospel is meaningless. Can I say that? It's not that it's not true, but it's, it's not meaningful or impactful because people have to see that you care, that you love them if they're going to receive the truth, right? So there was something about Philip that he was able to get past all of that hatred. Now, of course, he's a Grecian Jew, so the hatred isn't as strong as it is among the Hebraic Jews. But still, Philip went to a city in Samaria. I often think about what God has called me to do or where God has called me to go. And I often realize that one of the signs that God is calling me to go somewhere is he gives me a strong love for the people. See, I really don't think you can go and minister in a place if you don't love the people and love the culture. Not that you love everything about the culture, but if God gives you a heart for a people group or a particular segment of our society, you should go with that. You should take the love that God gives you for certain individuals and certain cultures, ethnic groups, regions of the country or regions of the world, and you should allow that to manifest in and through your life in such a way that you preach the gospel there. Look again at our text. Philip went down, in verse 5, to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Where is there for you? Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and he would make them witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea. But Philip went to the next step. He went to Samaria, and then, of course, to the ends of the earth, which we'll get to in chapter 13 of the book of Acts. I think the first thing you have to see is that Philip was determined to share with the Samaritans the truth that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but if there was hate in his heart, he never could have done it. There had to be love in his heart for a hated group of people. I can think of a lot of quote-unquote groups of people, not necessarily by race, ethnic group, or language group, but I can think of a lot of groups of people, especially politically, 
I can think of a lot of groups of people who it would be very easy for us as Bible-believing Christians to hate. We can hate sin, and we should hate sin, because it hurts people. But if there's a group of people, if there's a lobbying group or some, some subculture within our culture that you hate, ask God to turn that hate into love. And if he does, and I know he will, Make yourself available to even minister the gospel there. Where? There. In the place that God gives you a heart for the people. I'm not going to single out particular groups, but if you look at the political spectrum today, generally Christians, we're on the right, somewhere from the middle to the right. And then there's the left, and then there's the far left, and I'll tell you what, most of us have a really difficult time with the beliefs of those on the far left, and rightfully so. A lot of what they're preaching is demonic. A lot of what they're promoting is wrong and sinful. But that was true in Samaria. That was true of the Samaritans as well. And Philip preached the gospel. Philip preached the Christ there. He preached the word of God. He shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And the Holy Spirit anointed his words and his ministry because he had a heart for the people. Crowds came to listen. Crowds don't come to listen to someone who doesn't care. They came to listen to him speak. They saw him perform miraculous signs. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to cast out evil spirits, of which there were many, (laughs) and heal many, which means there were many sick and diseased. Where you find the devil's influence... Where you find demonic oppression and possession, you will find sickness and illness. What do I mean? Well, listen, I'm not the kind that finds a demon under every rock, but I'll tell you this. If there's a demon influencing people with sexual sin, then the results of sexual sin oftentimes are illness. If there's a demon or demonic force influencing people towards substance abuse, drug addiction, There's going to be the sickness and the illness that comes from living that lifestyle. If if there's an influence of laziness and vagabonds who who don't want to work and live on the street because of a demonic influence, perhaps mental illness, which is also a byproduct of demonic influence, these things leave people ill and sick and unhealthy and diseased. So here you have a culture of people who've given themselves over to to false things. And as a result of the false teachings and the false doctrines that they believed, the demonic influence was so strong that when Philip got there, it says, with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, many. I've come to this conclusion, and and it's not because I'm a ghost buster. I've come to the conclusion that some of the stuff, if not all of the stuff that's being promoted on the far left, is demonic. I don't even want to get into some of what happened this week in our news because it's gross, and I don't even want to talk about it. But you're starting to see what happens when a culture comes to some kind of a conclusion that, you know, bathrooms should be shared in high schools and in grammar schools. Like, where is that coming from? It's not not equity. It's not what's right. It's what's terribly wrong and, and perverted and wrong and sick and demonic. 
And that's what happens to a culture when people within the culture give themselves over to demonic influence. They become sick and diseased in so many awful ways. But Philip preached the gospel there. You see, that's the problem. We can't write off a culture just because they're demonic. We can't write off an entire group of people just because they're sick and diseased. We have to be like Philip and realize this is why we're here, to reach the culture like the Samaritans. And I would suggest that perhaps our culture is far worse, but no less in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Crowds came. He's empowered by the Spirit. And he exercises spiritual gifts that come with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts like evangelism. The ability to preach the gospel. Miracles, the ability to do things that are inexplicable and supernatural. And healing, that is to help those precious people who were afflicted because of their sins and other reasons. This is what Philip was doing in a city in Samaria. This Samaritan city was filled with the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, it's described in nine ways, but one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And we read there in verse 8, So there was great joy joy in that city. Now, you know why that's important? Because our cities today are filled with anything but joy. They're filled with hate, crime, violence, all sorts of demonic activity, sickness, vagrancy, homelessness, and the world is trying to fix those problems in the wrong way. There's only one way to fix those problems, and Philip understood what it was. It's to preach the Christ. It's to preach Jesus Christ. But are many Christians even willing to go? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I haven't been back into the New York City since the, since the last year because I, I, I really I fear for my life going into that place, a place where I spent 20 years of my life ministering, and, and it's just not safe. Times Square within the last couple of weeks. A shooting right in the middle of Times Square. We haven't seen that kind of stuff since the years of David Dinkins those of you old enough to remember, before Rudy Giuliani became the mayor of New York. But at the same time, it is those afflicted, it is that group of people who are afflicted, diseased, and in need of the gospel who desperately need to hear it. So we need to open up our hearts to the most demonically influenced, to the most diseased and sick. But we can't just open up our hearts or enter into political debate we need to preach the Christ. So if you're not willing to preach the Christ, if you're not willing to preach Jesus Christ, you probably got no good business going there. But Philip preached Christ there. So, because it was a very demonic environment, which many cities can be described in that way, right? Because it was a very violent place, because it was a very evil place, because it was a very diseased place, this Samaritan city had a guy by the name of Simon the Great, or Simon the Sorcerer. Here's what we read in verses 9 through 11. For some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. I've shared this before. I love illusion. 
I, I love to watch those shows, you know, where the magician comes out and does all sorts of wonderful illusions. It's fascinating. If you, if you stop and think about it, the science of it, the physics of it, it's, it's really cool. It's really neat. Well, I mean, what kid doesn't like a magic trick? But it was a little bit more than this. You see, he used his sleight of hand, his illusion, to, to promote himself as something he wasn't. And so therefore, what would have been entertainment actually became deception. And ancient sorcery included everything from drug use to demonic activity and occultic practices. But more often than not, they were just tricks But the tricks were used to deceive people into supporting that magician. And, of course, this this developed throughout ancient cultures with shamanism and the occult. Many times people were taken advantage of by these individuals because they promoted themselves as being someone great with great power. So people would go to them and look for help. So someone who was sick and diseased and, 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 and had a horrible life and was perhaps even demonically influenced or possessed, when they had a problem, they'd go to the great one, Simon the sorcerer. When they had a problem, they went to the one that they thought had true power, Simon the sorcerer. And then Philip preached the gospel there, and things changed. Now, he had practiced magic. Simon had practiced magic or illusion in this Samaritan city for some time. He had a really good thing going. He claimed to have supernatural power. People foolishly believed him, but I think we've realized by now people will foolishly believe just about anything. You don't even need to tell the truth. You can just keep telling a lie over and over again. People will believe it, let alone deception and tricks and all sorts of evil practices. They were fooled into believing that he had divine power. They called him the great power. And so they followed him because he had used his magic and his illusion to deceive them. Don't allow anyone to influence you in this way. But the culture has given their hearts to these types of things. And there are many things like this in our culture today. Well, here's what happened in verses 12 through 13. It says, but when they believed Philip, now see, the Samaritans believed Philip. Philip was performing miraculous signs and wonders that far exceeded that of what Simon could fake or imitate. But it says, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Not hard to imagine. I think he truly did believe. I think Simon truly did admire what Philip was doing. And we'll see in a little while, there was stuff going on in his heart that needed to be purged. But the man was attracted to miraculous things. There are many Christians today who get distracted by miracles, distracted from the gospel and God's word because of miraculous signs and wonders. It happened like crazy back in the 80s. I remember that distinctly. It was all about signs and wonders, signs and wonders. And the problem is those churches that promoted signs and wonders stopped preaching the word of God. And many Simons, many sorcerers came in among them and faked their way through fleecing people of their finances and destroyed the reputation of charismatic Christianity. 
And to be a charismatic simply means you believe that God gives us gifts and can do powerful things. And I believe every one of the gifts is for today. I believe God can do anything he wants through anyone he wants. But Simons will always show up when a work of God's Spirit is going on because they want in on it. And they manipulate people. Now Simon is having issues here because he believes, but at the same time he, he, he hasn't changed yet. There's still work that needs to be done in his heart. But Philip baptized him. He, he, he was willing to accept his statement of faith. There was no question that the man had issues. I believe that the people of Samaria clearly exercised a sincere faith as Philip baptized the Samaritans that believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe they exercised a sincere faith in God by believing the gospel and by being baptized. But they were far from perfect. They didn't know everything that needed to change in their lives on day one. Do you remember when you first became a Christian? I would like to somehow get a magic eraser and erase a lot of the things I said and did within the first six months to eight months of my faith. Words I still used, behaviors I still practiced, attitudes I still had. And and, and granted, I've grown a lot over the last 30-something years, but those first six months, wow, they must have been brutal on the people that were ministering to me. Because I was very much like Simon in that a lot of the world was still clinging to me. A lot of the thinking of the world, the behavior of the world. But there were people who were patient with me as I sort of learned what it was to be a Christian and studied God's word and God applied those things to my heart and by his spirit changed me, but it did not happen overnight. It happened relatively quickly, but it didn't happen in the first week. So that's where we're at, and we're we're told this for a reason, because as Philip is doing this, uh, as they're believing Philip, and the miraculous signs help these very superstitious people to believe, but they did believe the truth of the gospel, Yes, they believed the miracles. The miracles got their attention. But then Philip shows up and he upstages Simon and Simon's tricks with the true supernatural power of the Spirit. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. What will happen in your life as you minister in the power of the Spirit and you minister the Word of God, you're going to show a group of people who might hate you, who might despise you, that the power of God is real and they're going to compare it to the, to the nonsense they've been believing. They're going to compare it to the foolishness and the lies that they've been told. And they're going to see that Simon's tricks can't compare to the Spirit of God. But that'll never happen unless you preach Christ there. Philip upstaged Simon. Now, the Samaritans obviously had an unhealthy taste for the supernatural. You know, as a Christian, you can have an unhealthy taste for the supernatural. There are lots of people who focus far too much on evil spirits and demons, and and far too much even on prophecy and the things that talk about those things, or even on the gifts of the Spirit. Now, it's not to say that I don't love to see God's Spirit working in a powerful way. But if you allow those things to distract you from the truth of the gospel and God's word, then you're going to develop an unhealthy fascination with spiritual things. And it can even damage you spiritually. It's, it's like those Christians that I sometimes meet where everything's about demons. 
They talk more about demons than they do about Jesus. I'm sharing about demons because it came up in our text today, but you guys know I don't talk about them every week. And we're talking about it in the context of preaching the gospel. But there are some people, I mean, if you sneeze, it was a demon. You get a cold, it was a demon. You you see, that's a problem. And these people had that unhealthy taste. But God met them where they were at. He met them with the supernatural, but he met them with the truth. And he met them with a man and through a man who loved them and cared about them. They now had the truth. And both men and women, by the way, were baptized in Samaria. Uh, Have you ever thought, I mean, were women being baptized during the time of Jesus? It doesn't mention it. But I have to assume that this was true because here we have men and women being baptized in Samaria. And that's a good thing. And Simon the sorcerer, a really troubled man, he believed and he was baptized. Have you ever, have you ever heard stories? I've heard stories uh, of certain churches that refuse to baptize certain people. Uh, there, there, there's, you know, within politics, there's this idea of certain churches withholding communion. And listen, The Bible talks about us not giving communion or a person who doesn't really believe what communion stands for, not distributing communion to them. But it's funny because baptism is a sign of someone's uh, inward repentance and it's an outward sign. I don't know that I would ever withhold baptism if the person truly wanted to be baptized. Uh, so think of the most wicked person you know, and, and if they came to you and you happen to have a swimming pool in your backyard, and they said, listen, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for my sins. I was listening to the radio, and I heard that he rose again on the third day. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. I, I, I know that he died for me because I'm a sinner, and, and I want to be saved. But I also read, and the pastor said, that I need to be baptized. Would you baptize me? You're thinking, man, I just cleaned the pool. When I put that guy in the pool, all the filth off of that guy is going to make me have to clean the pool again. It's funny how we can be. I love the fact that Philip did not withhold baptism from this guy. I really don't think there's anyone who sincerely proclaims to believe the truth who should be told, uh, you got to take a six-week class on baptism before we baptize you. That's not a slam on any church, but I just don't understand it. Okay. Simon the sorcerer followed Philip everywhere he went. As Philip continued to minister to the Samaritans, he's listening, he's learning. He's awestruck by the power of the Holy Spirit working through Philip among the people. He's impressed. But you see now, this is a little bit of a problem. Not a major problem, but it's a little bit of a problem for the Jewish church. Because here's here's the problem. This is the first time that God really reached out to the Samaritans. Now, Jesus did. He ministered to the Samaritans. But since the church has come into effect, this is the first time. It was all happening in Jerusalem, and now it's happening in Samaria. And so we read in verses 14 through 17, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John, you remember them, They sent Peter and John to them, and when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received 
the Holy Spirit. Now, that's very interesting, and it requires me mentioning a few things. The Holy Spirit baptized the Samaritans, not Peter and John. The Holy Spirit, not Philip. Philip may have water baptized them, but the Holy Spirit baptized them. Peter and John were sent by the apostles in Jerusalem to minister in Samaria. I'm sure they're there sort of checking things out, seeing what's going on. Not that they didn't trust Philip, but they were informed of the Holy Spirit's ministry through Philip in in Samaria. They knew something was going on. It's not that far away. They were aware that the Samaritans had accepted the word of God, that they had been baptized, and they felt it was important to send Peter and John to minister to them with apostolic authority. Now, Peter and John did what? They prayed. They prayed. They prayed for the Samaritans that had believed and were baptized. They prayed for them. Notice verse 15. What did they pray for? that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this requires me taking a moment and talking about what that means, and I have no problem doing that. They prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't dispute the sincerity of their faith or their water baptism. They didn't see and check them out and say, well, I'm not sure if you're really saved. They did recognize that they had not yet been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's pretty obvious in most Christians' lives. Because when you haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit, you're not being used by God to minister to others. When you haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit, there isn't that power for change in your life that exists when you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. It is a part of being a Christian. It is certainly a part of the process of God working in your life. But it is not what happens when you give your life to Jesus Christ. It is something that can happen at that time or many times happens at a later date. See, the Holy Spirit had not come upon any of them. He had dwelt in them. Because no one calls him Lord but by the Spirit. He had dwelt in them. He had not yet come upon them. There were different Greek words. They recognized this experience as a separate and distinct experience of the Holy Spirit. Being baptized and coming to Christ was one aspect of a spiritual experience with Christ. It brought salvation, deliverance from from sin. It, It brought redemption and eternal life. But there was more. And they knew that they needed more. This experience of the Holy Spirit. It is possible to be saved and yet not to be baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. We know this. The apostles belonged to Jesus before the day of Pentecost. They were his disciples. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them. We'll see later on that the household of Cornelius has a similar experience in chapter 10. This is a legitimate experience of God's Holy Spirit, a necessary experience of God's Spirit, and it happens in the life of the believer who wants it. Jesus said that earthly fathers know how to give good gifts. But if you ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, he will give it to you. He will give him to you, the Holy Spirit. You need only ask. Ask and you'll receive. To anyone who asks, he'll give the Holy Spirit. They wanted it. Peter and John prayed for them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts are exercised in the life of a believer that's baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if you're using spiritual gifts, if God is working through your life as you serve others, 
You're baptized with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have to be an extreme moment. It doesn't have to be something where you speak in tongues or you, you, know, you suddenly have flames of fire over your head. It is an understanding that you have asked God to fill your life with the Holy Spirit and use you in a mighty and powerful way and to empower you for service. And it's what they prayed for. They received the Holy Spirit when Peter and John placed their hands on them. Holy Spirit baptized them through the apostles as they prayed for them. And by the way, prayer is usually the way that people experience this. Some people, when they come to Christ, they come forward at an altar call or they pray with someone and they receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes upon them at that very moment. But for others, they may be serving Christ, knowing Christ most of their lives and then they suddenly hear a teaching like this and they think, you know, that's what's been missing in my life. I love God. I know I'm saved, but I've never really felt that I've been gifted to do anything. I'm missing my purpose in Christ. I hear the pastor saying that Philip was called to go to Samaria, and I never feel called to go anywhere. It's probably, and I don't know this for sure, but it's probably because you haven't asked to receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's something we need each and every day. It's not something that happens once in your life and then that's it. It's something that needs to happen all the time. Because after uh, Acts chapter 2, there was Acts chapter 4, when the Holy Spirit came down again upon the apostles. Now, I know this might wig a few people out, but that's what the Scripture teaches in the book of Acts. So here's the problem. Now, Simon, as as we close things up, Simon sees all of this. Now, now he saw something. We don't know exactly what, but he saw something. He saw the apostles. He'd met Philip. He sees Peter and John. They come and they pray for people, and there's something different about the people that receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is, there's something different, some experience that gets his attention. And this is what we read in verses 18 through 19. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He's confused, obviously. He desired to purchase this supernatural ability. Simon was impressed with the power of the Holy Spirit working through Peter and John. He saw something he wanted. And there must have been something that he experienced or witnessed that amazed him. It may have been something visual, audible, or the immediate exercising of of certain spiritual gifts like the gift of tongues or prophecy or discerning of spirits. Whatever it was, it got his attention. So what does Simon do? He offers Peter and John money for the power of the Spirit. He had obviously purchased all of his illusions from other magicians in the past. By the way, this is a common practice even today. People don't develop their tricks. They purchase them from other magicians. This was a common practice then. It's still a common practice today. He assumed he could do the same with these true spiritual gifts, and of course he couldn't. See, many times the desires of new believers are wonderfully sincere but terribly misguided. And I think that's what we see here. Now, Peter being Peter, you know Peter, right? You've read his epistles. You've seen him in the Gospels. You know that Peter... He's not a man who holds back what he's thinking. So Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money? You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord, perhaps. (laughs) I like that. 
Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Lighten up, Peter, right? Is that what you want to say? Like, man, Pete, come on. The guy just got saved and baptized and like you're being a little heart. Whoa, no, no, no. There was stuff that needed to change in this guy's heart, and Peter was just the guy to point it out. It's not bad what Peter's doing. It's just, that's Peter. He rebuked Simon for thinking he could buy the gift of God with money. Now, Peter had a reputation. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5? When he said things like this, people fell over dead. So this is a serious moment. Peter exposed Simon's wicked heart. He called him to repent of his sin. He cursed Simon in the same way that he had cursed Ananias and Sapphira. He excommunicated him. You realize that? He excommunicated Simon from the ministry, accused him of not having a heart for God. He called him to repent of his wickedness and prayed to the Lord for forgiveness, which was the right message. But boy, oh boy, that's something, huh? See, Peter had discerned that Simon was full of bitterness. He was in bondage to sin. There were things that needed to change. He needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He needed it. Peter exercised what we call the spiritual gift of discernment. He, he knew something was off. There was something wrong. See, Simon had become bitter after being upstaged by these men of God. Deep down in his heart, he was bitter and jealous and envious. And part of what was motivating him to be involved was that he wanted to be like them and regain his notoriety and his great power. He was still captive to the sins of pride and his desire for greatness, as so many are who come to Christ. Simon immediately repented, though. Look at verse 24. To his credit, then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. You know, that's wonderful. Because Ananias and Sapphira did not respond that way. But Simon the sorcerer did. Peter believed that it was absolutely necessary for him to rebuke Simon for his sins, but Simon clearly had ulterior motives and selfish desires that God wanted him to address. If there are things in your heart that God wants to address, he may be harsh with you, but he's always loving. And Simon immediately repented, and he wanted Peter to pray for him. You know, when someone, when you rebuke someone, and they come to you and they say, oh, pray for me, the rebuke was effective. There's, There's no reason to be harsh anymore. Pray for me, Peter, that that nothing you said happens. I I want nothing you said to happen in my life. I want every good thing and perfect thing to happen in my life. Pray for me. That's a heroic moment right there. That's a fantastic example of what happens when we preach the truth to those who are caught in sin. So why do we tone it down? Why are we afraid to be direct and like Peter? Because we think people won't respond. But you know something? Simon responded to the truth. Because the truth was preached in love. And then we read, and in closing, as I asked the worship team to come up, when they had testified and proclaimed, speaking of Peter and John, when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many, many Samaritan villages. The gospel has come to Samaria because of a man named Philip called by God, anointed with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has worked in the lives of the apostles and the disciples and in the lives of the hearts of the Samaritans and in the life and the heart 
of a man named Simon the sorcerer. They preached the word of God in this Samaritan city. Then on their way back to Jerusalem, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in many Samaritan villages. And by the way, this is the last time that John the Apostle is mentioned in the book of Acts. Of course, he went on to write the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and record the revelation of Jesus Christ. And from here on in, we'll see a little bit more about Peter, and then we'll pass on to Paul, because we're following uh, an outline that starts in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. So as we close, and as we now begin to prepare our hearts to receive communion, I'm just going to ask one question. Actually, I'm going to ask two questions. First is this. Is there something lacking in your life? Do you, do you, are you lacking purpose and direction, power and anointing to serve God? Because if you are, it could be, it may be that you need to ask God to anoint you with the power of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit to come upon you and for you to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't need to walk around here or have the elders lay hands on you. We could do that. But the truth is, God will give the Holy Spirit to all those that ask. And maybe, maybe you've experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, maybe decades ago, and you have been working for God for many years, but now you're starting to sense uh, you need the empowering to do what God has called you to do. Then remember Acts chapter 4, where the apostles came together, the disciples came together and prayed, and the room was shaken, and the Holy Spirit empowered them with boldness. See, the Holy Spirit is a person, and he is God, and he desires to fill your life, to baptize you, to give you everything you need to serve him. It's, a, it's an experience separate and apart from salvation. It doesn't have to be, but it oftentimes is. And it comes to the person, to the man or to the woman, whether or not they're water baptized, because as we'll see in chapter 10, in the household of Cornelius, they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then they figure out, well, these guys need to be baptized, water baptized. God will come into your heart, and it comes down to how much of your heart you make available to him. But once you do that, then the second question is a very important one as well. Because Philip was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And because he was, he had received a call. And that call was to reach Samaria with the gospel. It says that Philip went to Samaria, to a Samaritan city, and he preached Christ there. Where is your there? Where is your there? Where has God called you or will call you? to preach Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask for your wisdom, your guidance, and your discernment, your might and your power. And we simply ask that you would do a powerful work in our midst. Even now, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, we're asking that you would come upon us in great power, that if there's anyone here who's never experienced the outpouring, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, That maybe even as we receive these elements, even as we're in prayer, even now, as we just open up our hearts, may you so fill our lives. And may your Holy Spirit come upon us no different than the day of Pentecost or in Cornelius' household or here among the Samaritans or later on in the city of Ephesus. Throughout the book of Acts, we see this happen when people surrender their hearts and their lives to you. Wonderful, miraculous things happen greater than speaking in tongues, greater than prophecy. Greater in that it brings a love in the heart of the individual for those in the world who need to hear the gospel. That's what we ask for now. Your Holy Spirit would come upon us in every way and in a powerful way and anoint us and gift us to be able to serve you and serve others. 
And then reveal to us in our hearts where you've called us to do your will and to do your work and to walk in your ways. And now as we receive communion, Lord, may our hearts be fully open to you. And we know that communion is not for the person who hasn't said the prayer that we've just said. And there may be some here today who've never received communion or maybe haven't even given their lives to Christ. What a wonderful opportunity this is. We don't want to refuse communion to anyone, but no one who has not received Christ should receive communion. So, Lord God, we ask right now that you would just take this time of communion, fill us not only with your spirit, but with a remembrance of your death and your resurrection, which made the anointing of your spirit possible, your salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.